0: Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Doing well. My name is David. I'm a pastor over at Cross Point Church in Crown Point, Indiana. Uh, I am here today to visit with you guys to actually bring the word. Uh, I am uh, excited just to to even carry greetings to you from from Cross Point. We are excited about this church, what God is doing, and uh, it's just a pleasure for me to be here. I'm, I'm here every Tuesday night, so I feel like this is a little bit of my home, even though it's my first time with you here uh, this morning. And so we are in a series in Colossians, and uh, before I jump into that, I, I want to just um, make mention of something. This last week we had a, uh, a forum at Purdue Cal um, with our group, which is uh, a student ministry there, and a group there called the Secular Student Alliance, which is a group of uh, atheists and agnostics. And so two weeks ago we had this forum on Monday night, where that's when we meet, and I had a great uh, response. Uh, I feel like it was a very productive time with questions, and uh, it was about two hours straight. I mean, it was, a, it was a pretty intense night, but it was a really productive time, and so we had a follow-up to that at the, the SSA meeting where, where they meet typically on Tuesday nights, and so there was a number of you guys that were here. I appreciate you showing up, but I, um, walking away from the night, I felt like it would have been better off for me to watch two hours of C-SPAN than to spend—it uh, it wasn't the most productive time. And um, it was a little bit disappointing, actually, and so there was uh, shouting, yelling, jumping over tables, slamming books, slamming doors it was It was a, a lively night, to say the least and um, I, I think one thing that really as I walked away from that evening, it, it really stuck with me as I was looking at the scriptures uh, for this morning is that there's one guy who asked a question, basically. It was um, laced with many uh, swear words, a lot of F-bombs and things that I won't share with you. But in his question, basically, it was more of a statement. He said, you know, first, you know, just religion's evil, and it kills people, and it, I don't I care for it. And then he went on to say, you know what, so what you're telling me is basically, if I, you know, come to, to, to some church with some jerk pastor, give some money to stupid offering, and come to church each week, then, then God will be happy with me, then I'm going to heaven. No, thank you. I, I don't want anything to do with that type of religion. And uh, what struck me with, with that statement is that there was such a, a misunderstanding, really, I think, of, of the Christian faith and especially of the gospel. And so this guy here had an understanding of religion, where it's basically human effort and rules and things that you do. And what he was missing was the heart of our faith. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so I try to take a, a few minutes uh, responding to that by just basically laying out the gospel that you know we we have all fallen short; that there is no one who does good. I, I painted a pretty bleak picture of of humanity. That man, we really blew it. That you know the 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 face of this earth of sin and suffering is a result of of our own doing. And uh, as I got into that, one girl had a quick statement. She said, I couldn't live like that. That's, I don't want that. How could I ever live not ever being able to please God? And I thought that was the most productive question that ever came out that night, because this girl understood if we are not good, if there's nothing good about our lives, if we can never please God, then what is the point of serving a God like that? And that is the, and that's when the glorious, gospel of Jesus Christ came in. And this is why Jesus is a big deal. And this is why Paul in the letter to Colossians was just nuts about Jesus. Because he changes this religion, this life that is just lived in shame and and never being able to be good enough, is transformed into this life of freedom and love and acceptance and just being fulfilled just in, in the presence of the Lord. And so I want to break down, I think, just before we get into uh, Colossians 3, just a little bit of a a backdrop of what Paul is getting at. And so, um, I don't know if our slide people are ready. Ashley, are we good? Awesome. I I threw this at them at the last minute, and so I appreciate their their patience. And so, what Paul is writing at in this letter that you guys have probably seen already in in, in Colossians is basically a full-length portrait of Jesus Christ. Paul takes elaborate measures to keep going back to the person of Jesus. And so this is what he brings the point to. This is who Jesus is. He is God's son, the object of the Christian's faith, the redeemer, the image of God, Lord of creation, head of the church, reconciler of the universe. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead and under him every power and authority in the universe is subjected. He is the essence of the mystery of God, and in him, all, all God's treasures of wisdom and knowledge lie hidden. He is the standard foreshadowed by the regulations and rituals of the old covenant. By his cross, he conquered the cosmic power of evil. And following his resurrection, he was enthroned at the right hand of God. Our life now lies hidden with God in Christ. But one day, both he and we will be gloriously manifested. This is Paul's uh, attempt To portray Christ is a big deal. He is a big deal. And so after Paul goes in this huge just doctrine of Christ, of who Christ is and what he's done and how we should respond, he basically starts in Colossians 3 by saying, okay, so here's the doctrine. Here's the, the greatness of Christ. Now let's make this practical. And so in Colossians 3, 1, he says, so then, and then he leads into these few practical steps near the end of the letter of basically saying, we have this idea of this greatness of Christ. Here's how it transforms how we live every day together. So the first thing that we see in Colossians 3, 1 through 8 is Paul basically relating to the Christian in Christ. He's helping them see, okay, so now you have this big, awesome picture of Christ. I think what I love about this book is that if you're ever in Sunday school, so often, you know, the, the kid's fail-safe answer is Jesus. This is the one book where you're going to get it right every time. Like if the kids say Jesus this morning for every answer, they're going to get it right because everything he says is pretty much Jesus. And so Paul is basically laying this out and saying, first and foremost, after we have this great picture of Jesus, this is what it means for the Christian. It means that we are to set our hearts, our minds on things above. We're to put away our old way of life, the way that we used to live before we knew Christ. We're supposed to become in daily experience what Christ's character is. That we're supposed to be formed in him. We're supposed to relate to him in this. It's, it takes an intentional life of, of placing our affections, our mind, our heart on Christ who is at the right hand of God. And then he goes on to say, okay, so that's, that's basically how you walk out. This is the practical aspect of Christ in the church. And now we're going to look at what it means for the Christian in the local church. How do we get along here to, together? How do we interact with each other? He gives basically almost just some basic rules for Christ's kingdom. He lists just this equality. And I think in 311 where he he says there's no slave, no Greek, no barbarian, no male, no female. There is this equality that Paul says is found in Christ. So in the church, we don't have a hierarchy. We don't have like your super spiritual people. And then like the, the dudes who just don't get it. Like we are one. We are equal with each other because of Christ Jesus. So often religion can be used as a means of the haves and have nots the, the people who are in power, the people who have the knowledge, and the people who don't. Paul's saying, in Christ Jesus, we are all together, one body, one people, one family. We're equal. He challenges us as a church to be clothed in Christ Jesus, to clothe ourselves with compassion, with kindness, with meekness, with gentleness towards each other. That's, that's how we live out our Christian walk together. And he goes on then to challenge them as a church. You need to admonish, encourage each other with the word together. So in home groups where you guys meet the life of the church, you are to encourage each other, admonish each other, exhort each other with the word of God. This is biblical church laid out by Paul. And so he moves on. And this is what we're gonna be looking at today is the Christian and his family, and the Christian in his daily work. These are the next two things we look at. I, I realize as as John gave me the scripture a couple months ago for this topic, that the the very first lead in is is wives submitting to your husbands. And I um I to be honest had a lot of fear and trepidation. This isn't a popular message that is preached today. Uh, and I, I told John I said, you know, maybe I can just you know, skip right past that and move to like children, because you know, you can't refute with that. And uh <laughs> There's none here today, so you know, I'd be in good standing. And, uh, and so as I looked at the Scripture, I came back a few weeks ago and I said, John, you know what? I, we can't get past this. this. This is God's Word. We can't be ashamed of it. We have to re- regain just a biblical understanding of, of what marriages should look like. And so I'm going to, with fear and trepidation, just take a little bit of time to unpack what Paul is saying in marriage. And so the good news is I'm visiting. I'm gone after this week, so... <laughs> If you guys have issues, John will be here to take those. (laughs) Just call Jane at the church and you can bother her too. So So, starting in 318, this is our primary text for this morning. If you have your Bibles, follow along. We're going to have it on a slide here. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Slaves and wives and marriage. I mean, that's quite the combination this morning. But I think what is important for us to understand before we unpack this is that there is, I think, so much misunderstanding and so much hurt that is involved with marriage. If we were to look at our country today, if we look at our our friends today, in ECHO, uh, our young adult ministry, just this year, I've spoken with at least three guys who are in their early 20s who are fathers who are also divorced. And I think what was once maybe an issue for people in their late 20s, early 30s, getting into their 40s, we're we're seeing today people as young as 21, 22 years old who are dealing with just a, a broken life, a broken marriage. And uh, a few months back, I had a, a buddy of mine who asked me to go to court with him to uh, basically finish uh, their, their divorce proceedings. And, uh, and so I, I wanted to go with him just to, to encourage him, uh, to be a support to him. And what was amazing to me is as we walked into the courts, and uh, his ex wife was there with a the lawyer, and, and we were sitting there, um, was the anticlimactic ending to something. That once started in such hope, excitement, dreams, and life. And we have the whole world in front of us. There's this, you know, gaga goo goo looking, this lovey-dovey. It once started here. What the heck happened that brought it to this place of complete brokenness? My buddy afterwards was just a, a wreck. He just was, he didn't know how to handle himself. I didn't know what to do. I took him to Dairy Queen. I thought, <laughs> ice cream, you know, it might help. It didn't. Um, but I realize that th- this is an area of our lives where so often there are such high dreams and hopes. And for many people end in just brokenness and just uh, depression. And I-, I want to not take lightly what the scripture says. This morning. I don't want to just come and just throw some words at you. I-, I realize that this issue is very personal. It hits home for a lot of us here. If you yourself have not been involved in a marriage or divorce, your parents probably have, your cousins probably have, your siblings probably We have all been affected by this. And it's interesting that there's this great quote by this guy, Stanley Harwis. He wrote this book on community of character. And he said this, The assumption is that there is someone right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find that right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage it fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never, marry, we, never, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, being what it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary, the primary, primary problem, that's a tongue twister, morally is learning how to love and care for this stranger to whom you find yourself married. For me, I, I had a, a wake-up call on our honeymoon. Beth and I, we were in Mexico. Our, I think it was our first day there. It was this beautiful resort. And the resort gave two robes to use, one for the husband one for the wife. And one robe was crusty, and one was nice and soft and plush. And so after, later that day, I, I was convinced that Beth had made the crusty one crusty. Therefore, I had the right to use the plush one, Because as a result of her making the one crusty, this one was mine. And so the whole week there was this unspoken like race for the plush robe that happened. And every time I got the crusty, I'm like, this is the most selfish wife I ever. Can you believe this? She makes one crusty, this one's gonna be crusty, she's gonna ruin it for everybody. I want the plush robe. I couldn't understand it. Who is this person I just married? What have I done? And it, it blew me away. Just my own sinful heart. And day one of our marriage, I'm already blaming her for making robes crusty. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you go about making robe crusty. But I was convinced that she did. But you know what? It, we laugh out now, and and I realize that I was just being an idiot and a sinner. And but that isn't that true. Like so often, it, we can be so quick in our hearts to make these judgment calls to be convinced that this person is wrong or in the wrong or wrong me, that for me it took one day, <laughs> which is really sad. I mean, I'm a pastor and it took me one day. So, And I think what is missing is an, a lack of understanding of, of the purpose and reason for marriage. Marriage is something that was God's idea. We didn't just come up with it after we walked out of the caves and said marriage looks like a good thing. This was God's idea. Marriage is something that God instituted. And so if it's God's idea, if he made it, it, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And I think sometimes what first starts an infatuation or, or just a, a general desire to have companionship, often terms comes to a place in marriage of a competition of wills, where it's my kingdom versus your kingdom. I think that things should be done this way. I think food should be look like this. We should eat this food. It's, it's my kingdom. It's my way. And if you come against my kingdom, if you are going to in any way threaten my rule, we're going to have issues. My kingdom was threatened by that crusty robe because I thought I had the right to have the plush one. It's something so idiotic, so simple, but that, for the gist of life, that's often what it comes down to. And what God is saying, the mission of marriage is not about your kingdom, it's about my kingdom. It's about my rule, it's about my reign in your life. And that is the beauty and mystery of marriage is that we live as sinners together, living to see God's rule, God's kingdom established in each of our lives, in our marriage. And that is the challenge in the mystery of marriage is how do we get there? And it's amazing because Paul says a few things that really are indicative about marriage. He basically says the chief business of the Christian is to maintain his relationship with Christ. Set your mind, set your heart on things above. That that is our goal and mission. If we don't get that right, if that is not in a healthy place, when this is unsatisfactory, the other relationships of life cannot succeed. And so Paul is saying this whole letter, first things first, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus sitting on the, the throne of your heart. If he isn't there, everything else is going to be affected by that. And so, first and foremost, when we, when we come to an issue like submission, we first have to understand that Paul precedes that with some very clear instructions about, hey, look, it's all about Jesus. There, there is absolute equality that exists in marriage. And so, now what does that mean for individuals? So, for the, for the wife, Paul does say, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And what Paul is really explaining for wives is what it means to call Christ the Lord. For a wife to call Christ the Lord, in his concept, there is no possibility of a married woman surrender to a heavenly Christ which is not made visible and actual by some submission to an earthly husband. So, for Christ to be on the throne of your heart, for that to be a reality, then practice that means if you are not submitting, if you are not living, surrendered to just your husband, then there's something wrong in that relationship. I have never had to tell Beth to submit to me, woman. I think so often submit has this connotation of like, woman, submit. And there's this, this you're this doormat. You do as I say. That is not the picture that Paul paints because we're going to see in a minute here that there's a two-way street that exists with marriage. But I first want to say this, it is women. It is not to be a doormat. I, I, I feel for the women most of all in this room because we live in a culture today that is screaming for women's liberation from marriage, from men. Everything that we see in TV, we see on the newsstands, it, it is pointing to a life lived independent from anyone telling you what to do. And the women, you have it the hardest here. This is not something that is an easy pill to swallow. But I think if we were to take serious God's word, if we were to take serious God's intention for marriage, we have to come to grips with, this is God's recipe for a successful In happy marriage is that women submit to your husbands. The wife's submission is never to be coerced on her by demanding husband. It is the deference of a loving wife, conscious that her home, just like any other institution, must have a head, gladly shows to a worthy and devoted husband. I think, man, husbands do little to deserve the loyalty of a true wife. (laughs) It's true. We We do. And Paul has an equally revolutionary word for them. And so Paul's response to husbands is, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The culture of the time, they knew what it meant to love. They knew those words to love. It existed, but it did not include them in rules for the household. This was a completely revolutionary term that Paul used for the household. Husbands, love your wives. And what's amazing is if you look in Ephesians 5, Paul goes on in greater detail of how husbands are supposed to love their wives. He talks about how they should love them like Christ in the church. And Christ laid down his life. He sacrificed everything for the church. So likewise, husbands, you need to do the same for your wives. And I guarantee you this, wives today, if you have a husband, if your husband is sacrificially laying his life down for you every day, he is lovingly, just giving himself to you. He's giving you those foot rubs when you're tired. He's giving you the shoulder rubs when your shoulders are sore. He's doing things. He's washing the dishes, actually. Isn't that real? He's changing diapers. He is sacrificially laying his life down for you every day. If your husband is doing that like Christ of the church, I guarantee this, submission would not be an issue. And so I realized that this issue of submission largely falls on the husband's inability to love their wife like Christ does the church. Just a a couple months ago, we had Echo here. A guy came up to me afterwards and said, you know, man, I'm struggling with my girlfriend. We're going really far. We're almost having sex. I know I shouldn't be. You know, we're both Christians. What should I do? And I'm too ashamed to talk to her because she might break up with me. And so I, I don't know. And, and I, I was, I don't know why, I, I usually am, am very compassionate and kind in, in circumstances like this. I, I, I'd let him know I appreciate your willingness to share this with me. But here's the thing, I said, right now, you are a boy. If you do not have enough guts to stand up for what is right, what is pure, and what is holy, before your girlfriend, you have no right to be in that relationship with her. You are a boy. If you're willing to be a man, step up and let me know. And we ended it right there. Because we have too many boys who are becoming husbands, who do not know how to sacrificially love their wives like they should. A day later, got on Facebook. Hey, I want to be a man, this guy says. I talked to her. We're doing things right. It's great. We're going to do it right. And she still wants to be with me. Thank you for challenging me to be a man. We need more men in our church today. Amen. Amen. And I believe that, men, if we would lay our lives down for our wives like we should, if we would give them that plush robe, if we would take the nasty rope, man, there would not be an issue, I think, with submission. It would be a joy. It's a two-way mutual relationship that God has instituted. That is God's ideal for marriage, guys. And when we do it right, when it is walked out right, it is a beautiful, amazing thing that the world takes notice of. Let's be a church that's bold enough to walk that out together. Amen? Fathers and sons. I'm almost out of time and I've just started. So I'm going to try to work my way quickly through this. Verse 20, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. They will become discouraged. How can a Christian child express his or her desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? By obeying their parents. That is how you walk that out. If there is a desire to please God that your child has, if there is a desire to live for God, it's walked out by obeying your parents. As a parent, what a great way to encourage them with that. You want to love Jesus? Obey me. It's easy. I think what's fascinating about this scripture is that when Paul talks about children obeying your parents, he moves to fathers. He doesn't mention, he doesn't say mothers and fathers do not embitter children. He says fathers do not embitter children. I think here's why, because women don't need to be included there. <laughs> women do a great, mothers are already there. They, they're the least people who are going to embitter their children. So Paul is implying to the fathers that fathers have a special responsibility and role in training their children. There is a unique place that fathers have in training their children. He doesn't address the mothers. He addresses the fathers. To encourage a person is creative. It is to stir him to do what otherwise would never have been achieved. Result of an irritable parent is to produce discouraged children in the sense that they are fearful, they are timid, they are shy, and they lack in normal self-confidence. If your children today are fearful, timid, shy, lacking in normal self-confidence, if they are discouraged, I want to challenge you, is it because you are being an irritable father? Are you being an encouraging father? That's what Paul is getting at here. They will become discouraged fathers if you embitter your children. I think it brilliantly reveals the secret of happy families. Also, it shows how those that might remain weak, families that are weak, Paul gives a recipe of how to become strong. Fathers, encourage, train your children. It is your responsibility. It's not just your wife's. This is a mutual thing. Women, well done. You don't get challenged here. You don't get called out. But Paul calls out fathers. Fathers, you have a special role. Take it seriously. Moving on. You doing all right? Yeah? Okay. I, I feel like I have a liberty to really like offend you guys because I'm gone after this. And so I love you though. And it comes from loving you. So just know that. I, I just want to say something real quick that I, I think is vitally is important because I think this whole role of, of fathers and dads, I think it, it, it relates to, to men being boys later in life. And a few years ago, I, I worked at a company called CDW uh, in Chicago, downtown. We had It was a, basically a huge call center, cubes everywhere. And I had a good buddy of mine. He was 38 years old, and he was a single guy and just had a lot of hurt, a lot of pain he was going through in life, and we would talk about things. Sometimes we'd go deeper. Sometimes we'd talk about the Bears. It just depends on the day. And one day, we were sitting there talking. I never really knew anything about his mom and dad or his father. I knew that they were divorced. I knew that his father had passed away, but I knew nothing of it. And so one day, we just started talking in the cubicle. There's people all around us. It's this massive company. It's like 2,000 employees in Chicago. We're sitting there talking, and I asked him about his father. And as we started to go deeper about his father, basically— his father was this kind of father. His father embittered him. His father discouraged him. And so he lived life totally lacking self-confidence, lacking self-esteem, just a wreck in life. And so at a young age, 18 years old, his parents got divorced. He had nothing to do with his dad. Totally wrote his dad off. He couldn't handle his dad. He couldn't stand his dad. They, they just severed their relationship completely. I think 10 years later, after not talking to his dad at all for 10 years, his dad went to the hospital for a serious illness. My buddy went there just because he was concerned, and his older brother said, Hey, you should be there. This isn't looking good. His brother goes there, his dad's there, on his dad's deathbed, his dad says, turns and, and just apologizes. Hey, I am so sorry for what I have done to you, for our relationship, for our life. I'm sorry. And my friend had a chance just amazingly to forgive him. Later that day, his dad died. And as he's sharing this story with me at CW, my friend is is bawling uncontrollably as he's sharing this with me. I'm like, to touch a nerve in the middle of cubicles, there's people surrounding us, people staring. My buddy is just weeping because he had a dad who never taught him how to grow up and to be a man. He never had that relationship. And so years later, he's thankful for being able to make right, but he lost 10 years. And he's living now as a boy because his dad never trained him. And so, fathers, don't miss your chance to be a dad as we go on we look at work and i i think this is fascinating with paul's approach to work because often when we look at the scripture, it talks about slaves. And whenever I've read slaves, I'm like, well, that doesn't mean anything today because we obviously disagree with slaves. We, we don't think it's a good thing. And so we can't really relate to what Paul is saying. I think historically there's been a, a misunderstanding of really what slavery was then compared to what it is today. The, the sla- any slavery obviously is wrong. But the slavery that we saw in our country where you basically own the person, they had no identity outside of their being your property, is just abhorrent to God. It is is offensive. It is not Um, at all in any way pleasing. And I'm I'm so grateful that we had Christians in this country that stood up for what is right to abolish slavery. What Paul is getting at is this. There's a quote by this guy, Murray Harris, who did a history on Roman times and slaves. And, And he said this, In the first century Roman Empire, when the New Testament was written, there was not a great difference between slaves and the average free person. Slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like most everyone else and were not segregated from the rest of society in any way. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not usually poor. Also, slaves could accrue enough personal uh, capital to buy themselves out. Most important of all, very few slaves were slaves for life. Most could reasonably hope to be manumitted or freed from slavery within 10 or 15 years or by their late 30s at the latest. And so there's a very different understanding of what a slave was back then. There was doctors that were, there were uh, construction guys. It was, they, they all made up this, this slave uh, relationship that was really like a, a normal worker we'd see today in our country. And so I want to just make a couple points before I end today, and I just want to address I don't want us to miss what, what Paul is saying regarding that relationship because I think often it can because it's the slave thing and we miss it. But basically, Paul is applying this to anybody who has a job today, basically, to workers. And what Paul is saying is that in Christ, the worker's worth is such that any task he undertakes for his master or boss, however menial, is fit to be part of his service to the Lord of glory. This would transform the understanding because back then, if you were working, you just did enough to get by. You did enough not to, you know, there wasn't unions back then, so it wasn't great a place to work. And so you did enough to get by. You did enough not to get beaten. You did enough. And Paul is saying, look, even the most menial job. Even if you are, uh, you know, a garbage man, a custodian, if you, you know, are a barista, whatever your job is, no matter how it looks. You're not working for men. You are working for God. And so it would transform their understanding of work because it would make it something transcendent. That my work now is not just for some dude or some boss. It's not for the man. My work is for the glory of God which changes how we do everything. I was blown away a few years ago. I, I remember this so clearly today. There was a guy in our church who stood up and gave a testimony about it. He was a police officer, and he was up for a promotion. And so uh, the, the city was basically offering a position. He interviewed for it. Everybody thought he was the most best candidate, if that's even a word, for this position. They thought this is the, he, you know, he could do it. All his coworkers agreed. He interviewed for the job. He, he thought he was going to get It ended up that somebody else got the promotion. And people came up to him and said, man, you know, are you angry? You should be angry. You should have gotten this job. This should have been yours. And I will never forget his response in in, in church a couple years ago. His response was this. I'm not angry because he's not my boss, actually. I am actually working for God. He is my boss. And if I get a promotion or not, that's up to him. All I know is what I do every day is for his glory. I do it for him. And that, when I heard that, It revolutionized my own understanding of work. That so often it's, you know, this guy doesn't, you know, get me. I put so much work in. He misses, you know, I I do so much better. They don't see it. They're missing it. Why do I have to get treated this way? Guys, our work is for the glory of God. And that's what Paul was getting at. We're not serving man at all. Everything the slave does now is part of his new work for the Lord or any person for that matter, from his miserable servitude, he has been rescued at a stroke to become a full-time servant of Christ. When you have been rescued by Jesus, you have been rescued to become a full-time servant of Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is getting at today. And I thought just as I, I, I finished today and, and what to, to just challenges us with, I, I hope this was helpful in understanding just what the heart of what Paul is getting at when it comes to marriage, when it comes to parenthood, when it comes to work, that we'd have a deeper understanding that it is all for the glory of God, that it is so that Christ would be supreme in everything. And I think what, what, what really transforms this, is uh, an example I heard uh, recently just of a, a pastor. He preached a sermon on the difference between religion and the gospel because so often, even in the church today, there are people sitting there who feel like it's by their human effort, it's by their being good people, that God is happy with them. And you know, in these chairs say there might be some of you today that, that live under that understanding. He the guy preached the gospel between religion and gospel, the difference between the two. And, the, and this lady came up and said, I never heard this distinction before. I, never, I, I always thought that God accepts us only when we're good enough for him. And she said, this message that you preached was scary to me. And and here's why. This is her response. If I was saved by my good works, then there'd be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would become like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I could deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there is nothing he cannot ask of me. So my question is, For you this morning, for those of you who would be considered people that have been saved by grace, what is God asking of you today? What is God asking of you? God, we just thank you for, Lord, the power of your word, God, that, Lord, it sets us free to live lives, Lord, to have marriages that are beautiful and awesome and glorify you, God. God, that they don't have to end in brokenness, they don't have to end in conflict, Lord, but they can be a place where there is life and freedom, and wholeness. God, we thank you that you have called us fathers here, Lord, to be men, to raise our children to be men and women. God, help us to put into practice your word. Lord, help us to take, Lord, the theology, the doctrine of the supremacy of Christ, and help us to live that out every day together, God. Lord, I pray your blessing on this church. Lord, I pray that you would use them, Lord, for your glory. This would be a church, Lord, that people would come to and hear the gospel for the first time. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has lived under religion, that you would today set them free, that they would cry out to you to be their Savior, God. Thank you, God. Praise your name. Amen.